you're optimistic anyway, so you tend to be aggressive. But then you say, okay, I'm aggressive, so therefore I'm, I want to try to be conservative. So you, you make some estimates and maybe you double it. Well, you're really probably wrong by 6x. <laughs> what I've always found is that things are three times as long and cost three times as much uh, as, as I, I tend to think when I go into it. And you, so you have to prepare for that. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. And I am your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several companies to eight or seven and eight figure businesses, as well as founded Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And today we have another great guest on that will tell a, a great uh, story of his journey, John Bean. And uh, he is the uh, founder of... Uh, uh, meme or, or mem, I'll go with memcpu.com because I'm guessing it's from memory, but I wanted to, I originally went to say B, but then I'm like, that doesn't look right. Um, but John, um, he also is, uh, came up with a, a few startups along the way, and he'll tell you a little bit more. Um, one was for an ATM for drugs, and he get, he'll explain that a bit more. Um, another was for uh, Bridge Medical and uh, uh, um, in the medical realm and uh, doing uh, cardio now. And a whole bunch of th fun things along the way that led him up to where he's at today. So welcome on to the podcast, John. Hey, Devin. Thanks so much. A pleasure to be here. So I gave just a very brief intro to a much more in-depth history, in a or you've accomplished a whole lot more. So maybe let's dive in now and tell us a little bit about your journey and what led you up to, to MemCPU. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I've been doing startups since uh, actually the late 80s. I started with a company called Pixis in 1989. Pixis was the ATM for drugs that you talked about. It was back in the days when nurses, the only way they could access medications was through a locked cabinet. And one nurse would have the key and the other nurses would essentially have to search out that nurse when, when they needed the medication. So Pixis uh, was essentially a, a ATM-like machine where nurses would then be able to access the medications themselves using their fingerprint, actually. And that uh, company did really well. It's essentially, you know, the de facto standard around the world for medication storage now and, and access, I should say, in hospitals. And uh, we were really fortunate with that company. We were acquired in 1996 for $960 million, so almost a billion dollars in, you know, 20... Uh, four years ago, that's, uh, that's, it was quite a feat. Uh, and that led into kind of giving me that startup bug. It was a lot of, uh, it was a very exciting uh, time. And I went on to, as you mentioned, a company called Bridge Medical. Uh, so still in the healthcare field, still in the hospital field. Bridge Medical was a device for essentially sitting at the patient bedside and validating that the, uh, through barcode, that the right patient was getting the right medication at the right time through the right route uh, and things of that nature. So a very, a very important technology there to cardio now. We're so jumping in just oh, before, sorry. No, yeah. by all means. Um, so you take the, you know, what I'm calling the ATM for drugs and or what you call the ATM for drugs and you make a, a good exit off, right? You make a good money, a good, good exit. 
And, you know, first of all, I think it's always, you know, a bit deceiving that you don't, you don't get a pocket all that money yourself and right. then just fall into your pocket. Otherwise, it'd be a different story. But, you know, you still probably made a good exit. But so what was the, did you take a break from that? Did you say, hey, I made a good, I built a good business. I'm going to take a break. Or is it right next to the next startup and I have the next idea that's even better than the last and I want to build that? Or how did you kind of make that transition from an exit from your first company to doing your second company? So at Pixis, I was, you know, a, a, a young engineer and I did well, but I, I uh, wasn't, you know, it wasn't a life-changing event necessarily. It, it uh, helped me buy a house and uh, vacation and, and do lots of things and, and not worry about uh, salaries so that I could go on and do more startups. And essentially I got that startup bug and was, it's like, well, I want to keep going on and then, uh, you know, become... Uh, you know, an executive in the startup world. And in fact, uh, what, by the time I left Pixis, I was a director and went into, when I went to Bridge Medical, it was my first position as a vice president. Uh, so that I was uh, my, you know, first time as an executive within, within a startup. And it was, it's just been a great, a great journey all uh, along the way. And it just, uh, I really, I enjoy working in startups. Uh, in some, some cases, I think that the, there may be something wrong with me mentally that that I enjoy it because it's it's a lot of hard work. There's a, a lot of ups and downs, and uh, you know it's a it's a crazy situation. However, the people that you work with, it's really all about the people that you work with because everybody's in it to win it, and you have all type A's or not always all type A's, but you have people that they're doing everything to succeed, and you don't have people that are just you know going to work and reading the paper and not caring about their job. And it's just really, uh, to me, very rewarding to work with people who go into work that, you know, every day can't wait to get in and to try and make a difference in the world. No, and if you have, you know, if there's something wrong with you, I'm right there with you in the sense <laughs> that, you know, whenever, I, typically when people ask me what my hobby is, I usually say startups and then they say, ha ha. And I'm like, no, it really is startups. That's usually if I'm, if I'm thinking about something or doing something, half the time it's on a new idea or chasing a new startup. But, you know, and then I obviously have hobbies beyond that. So now as we kind of circle back, so you got the startup bug, you, you, you know, you made a good exit, even if it wasn't or, or life changing, you know, had a good one and it set you up for the ability to chase in some of the other startups you've done. So you did bridge medical and you talked about how to make sure that medication, you know, at the bedside was done right or medicated properly. And then I think that as we talked before, you said cardio now was the, the next one. Maybe just jump back into the journey of, you know, where cardio now and where that went to. Yeah. So cardio now, so this was in 2000. Uh, so cardio now we did, uh, we went into cardiac cath labs and when they would do the uh, procedures, they would film the procedures using movie cameras, real, you know, uh, real film movie cameras. And, and it's all done through X, they x-ray the whole process while they're running the cath, uh, the catheter up through people's veins and into their heart and doing whatever procedure that they're doing. Well, the issue was that to view those films, doctors would essentially have to get the film and view it. And it's in, it's in negative form mm -hmm. and it's shaky because it's a film and it's running through a viewer. So we actually took a digital board that we would then integrate onto the cameras in the labs and, and take, splice out the, uh, the, the video as it's being captured in analog and convert it to digital 
We then would save it to computers inside the hospital where we, pro we provided very high resolution viewing screens and on, on computers. So the, uh, the high resolution viewers were, you know, there's many more of them than, than the number of uh, uh, just movie film viewers that they had. The doctors could look at it in negative or positive uh, if they wanted to, but there's, the key thing was it wasn't shaky. It was easy for them to access as videos would get uh, older, as movie, as the film would get older, they would start to move it off, off site. So maybe three months, six months later. So sometimes you have a patient coming in, you'd actually have to access, uh, get somebody to go and get the video, the, the movie from wherever it was. And by having it on local storage, uh, they wouldn't have to go and get it. We had much more storage than they had for film canisters. Uh, but then we went one step further and we actually created a cloud and did some of the first streaming of video uh, before, you know, YouTube and all these other things. And had we known to apply it in different areas, maybe we would be uh, having a different conversation here as well. But we would take, uh, we took all of those digital images, those digital videos, they were uh, uh, lossless compression. So no, no degradation to the quality of the, of the images of the videos. Hmm offload them to the cloud. Uh, at the time we had, just to give you an idea of, of costs, we had a, I think a half terabyte RAID and it cost us, I think uh, three quarters of a million dollars <laughs> compared to now where you could buy a four terabyte uh, RAID for 120 or something, maybe cheaper, uh, for, and then sit on your desktop. Anyway, and that was, that RAID was in Iraq. Um, uh, so we, and then, so we uh, did it offline for storage, but then we provided streaming to, uh, through browsers. Of course, this is time when people still had dial-up modem and things, and we would compress it based on the connection speed. So we would detect the connection speed that somebody had. And uh, if they had the CardioNow system in the hospital, we could actually upload the, the lossless video to them. But if they didn't have it, they could still view it via a browser. So what was important about that was that uh, in the cardiac field, the, the people with cardiac issues tend to be older in nature and maybe retired. And so there might be an issue where like on the East Coast, people live up in the North and then they in the winter, they go to uh, Florida or, or warmer places. So they could have a cardiac issue in either location and a doctor could see the, the past procedures and, and uh, that had occurred for that patient um, mm -hmm. within, you know, uh, ju just by going to a browser. So we're really one of the first to do that. And actually, since you're an IP attorney, that was where I got my first uh, patent. And mm -hmm. with Pixis and other things, it was before we really knew. And at the time, most of my work was software, software and hardware connected. But it was before you could really get software patents uh, until then when the key issue to that patent was that it was related to the system as a whole. So it wasn't just on the software as the fact that we did all the, uh, the compression. We had the, the servers at the hospitals. We had the cloud, uh, what wasn't called cloud at the time, uh, our, our co-location facility, and then could stream. And so it was that whole process uh, was actually the, the first patent that, that I received. That's awesome. That's cool. I always love patents. So you're never going to, you're never going to go wrong with talking about patents. Awesome. So, but now, what? Or so, you, but then after you did that, you, so you did that business, built it up, 
And then you moved over to, I think, you know, one of the next startups you jumped over to that we talked about was one that actually I'd seen or heard of, which was EcoATM, right? Well, that one was almost, uh, you can go in and put your cell phone in the machine. And I think I've seen them at Walmart and other places, or at least, you know, some iteration of them, where it will tell you, okay, I'll pay you X amount of dollars for your old cell phone. Is that right? Well, actually, before EcoATM and after, after Cardio Now, I did something called Asteris. So Steris was the first time I had co-founded a company uh, that was with um, a, a, an old colleague of mine from Pixis. So, and what Asteris was, was another ATM for drugs, but it, or what Asteris is, is, is an ATM for drugs, but it's for retail prescriptions versus medications in hospitals. So in hospitals, you're talking about loose medications or medications that are not really loose, but they're individual, they're packaged. Uh, but when it comes to a pharmacy, you're talking about medications that are that have been uh, uh, put into uh, uh, prescription-specific packaging. So, for instance, you and I could have the exact same medication, the same dosage, the same number of pills and everything. However, you'll have a, uh, a pill bottle that has a label on it with your name and your information. There'll be a pill bottle with my name on it and my information because of HIPAA laws and other things, there's no way that we can get those. And they also have to be filled by a pharmacist. So it's not like you could have a vending machine that just has a bunch of, of uh, common pills, so to speak, and then you print a label as people come to it. So we actually invented a new machine and the, the uh, number of my uh, additional patents are, are on this, these machines and related machines that we've built um, and designed to be able, it's kind of like a, a random access. So no matter what time you show up uh, and in what order people show up, we could get your medications from anywhere within the machine. Hmm. And so that was, that was a whole new machine as well. It wasn't like we were able to use what we had already done at, at, uh, at Pixis. So, okay. uh, so, so that was Asteris. And then while I was doing Asteris, um, uh, I got introduced to the people who were doing the EcoATM. Mm. And uh, what was interesting about that was, so my background had been in complex hardware software systems. Uh, and of course, uh, the, the uh, ATM type of kiosks. And so that was the idea behind EcoATM, which was to have a self-service uh, machine that people would walk up to bring their cell phone to and have the people uh, evaluate or have the machine evaluate visually and electronically the cell phone make an offer. And uh, what ended up happening was I started to advise them and then got really excited about the technology. Started, uh, it was actually pretty crazy where I was, I was kind of moonlighting for them where I was working at Asteris during the day. Mm. And then at night I'd go and do work for uh, EcoATM and design and and build the uh, software. I had a software team that was in India and they were 12 and a half hours different. So I kind of work until 6 p.m. with Asteris, go home, have uh, dinner, spend a couple hours with my wife and daughter, whose daughter was two at the time. And then at like 8.30, I'd get on Skype with, uh, with the team in India and beyond that until about 2 a.m., go to bed, lather, rinse, repeat. But what was even crazier was that at the time at Asteris, uh, we were opening Europe. And so I was also going to Europe like every six weeks for one to two weeks. So I'm 
working full-time essentially at two startups. I've got a wife and a two-year-old daughter and uh, end up going to Europe uh, for one or two weeks at a time every six weeks or so. It was, it was a really oh, great, that was a busy time of life. Yeah, it was, a, it was, it's amazing that I, I survived that. But then, so, uh, well, jump in really quick. So one question on that. So, I mean, and we'll get to a little bit more of what led to where you're at today. And I know you, you got a couple more steps in the journey, but you know, you, some of them I can see a common path and yet some of them I can't see, you know, so the ATM for drugs is kind of where you started and it got started in the medical realm. And, you know, that may have, you know, almost, I can see, then you got to the barcodes and even, uh, you know, cardio now, all those are kind of within the medical realm and, and solving, uh, you know, solving different devices, you know, different issues within that. And even, uh, you know, a terrorist. But then when, you know, so how was it though? Because eco-ATM is certainly not in the medical realm and, you know, is much different. And so, you know, was it, was it the same lessons you learned in the medical realm, you know, startup lessons or something that are applicable across the board? Or is it something to where it was completely new and you had to almost start over or learn new things or kind of how was that transition to going into a different industry, which was less known and, you know, didn't, it wasn't as maybe as comfortable. Does that make sense? Well, uh... In startups, there's nothing that's comfortable. Uh, you know, in virtually every single startup I've done, I've the, the not only has the product been built from the ground up, uh, but the market didn't exist at the time. The market didn't exist for Pixis, uh, certainly didn't exist for Cardio Now or for Bridge Medical when we first did that. The market mm-hmm. didn't exist for Asteris. I mean, there was no ATM for medications at at uh, at retail pharmacies and and hospitals for retail and and, and even uh, employers and things like that. Uh, and same with uh, EcoATM. They're, 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 they're all, they all have a lot of similarities, but they all have a, a lot of differences. Nothing work, you can't take anything uh, cookie cutter from one company to the next, regardless of whether or not you're in the same industry or not, but you take those experiences. And so things that may have worked at one company might not work at the next, mm. or things that didn't work at the at a, one company might work at the new one. You just, it's a hybrid and you just have to figure out how to apply it. Uh, a lot of it's uh, honestly, you know, uh, instinct, but instinct is built on experience and uh, your immersion into the new market and, and what you observe. Hmm. No, and I think that, you know, I, cause my experience has been, you know, there there's, I think that, you know, you do learn some lessons that are across to your point, there's always things that you have to learn new and, you know, startup is always an uncomfortable position because if it was, if it's already been done, people would have done it and then you wouldn't be in a startup position. And yet at the same time, there's also commonalities between a lot of startups in the sense that, you know, how to develop an idea, how to, you know, organize a team, how to build it, how to do marketing plan, how to get a business strategy. And so I think that, you know, sometimes we get so pigeonholed with, hey, I've done this and this is my expertise and this is the only thing I'm good at, that you don't really stop to think, hey, I've, a lot of the things and the skills and things I've come up with are applicable in other industries or, you know, I can do it in other areas if you just would kind of overcome sometimes a fear of, hey, this is something new and uncomfortable and different. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what always motivated me was what the we were trying to accomplish as, as the company. So I never really... Uh, I never really considered what we did or didn't know. And again, everything that we've, I've always walked into, I've walked into without a market that existed and without a product that existed. And it was always from the ground up. But did I believe in 
where that was going and what that could mean uh, to you know the the uh, the world or the the markets that they were to serve, and it's always one of those things where you know one of the things that I I look back at and and say is that I'm glad that I didn't get into uh, cultish religions because mm-hmm. I essentially startups were my cult. I if I had gone into some cultish religions, I probably would have drank the Kool Aid because I in essence drink the Kool Aid at every single startup that that I go to, and every single one that I'm in uh, from the day one, I am totally uh, engaged, totally optimistic, feel that it's going to be the next, you know, biggest thing in the world. Uh, and it's going to, you know, change the world. And, and they don't always, but they, uh, but, but there's, you, you have to, you know, suspend uh, disbelief and just, uh, you know, work every day to try and make that thing become a reality. Yeah. And I think there's, you almost have to have a degree of optimism when you, when you're in a startup, I mean, you almost have to be just a little bit delusional that it's going to work out. Otherwise, if you knew all of the, you know, all of the things that would happen along the road, you'd probably give up at the forefront because nobody would ever be in for that much punishment and ups and downs and unknowing and stress and everything else. And so I think that that's a good characteristic that almost, you know, the almost have to have is to be in a startup realm is a bit of, suspend reality or delusion or whatever you want to call it because I think there's a lot of truth to that so so now as we get back to your journey so you did that and you did eco um you worked the the two jobs kind of side by side um and then from there I think you moved over to UC Bert or sorry UC San Diego is that right well so from yeah so eco ATM uh I should tell a little bit more about that story just because it's a really interesting one so we, uh, I, I moved over uh, when we got our the seed round because just working two jobs seemed like it was, you know, had to make a decision. In fact, the, the CEO at EcoATM at the time had said, look, John, you, you need to make a decision. Uh, you either need to go back to your other company and dedicate your time there, or you need to dedicate your time here. And uh, it was a really hard decision because the Asteris was my baby and loved the people. And it's always hard leaving the people but it just seemed like the EcoATM was, was off and running and that I could make a real difference there. And it was exciting uh, and, and, and glad that I made the decision because it, so EcoATM did really well. In 2013, we were acquired by Outerwall. Outerwall owned uh, Redbox and Coinstar. So they looked at it as a strategic acquisition and they acquired EcoATM uh, for 350 million. So, Fortunately there, I was uh, a co-founder after coming on board, and that honestly was a bit of a life-changing event for me, and was, I'm glad that, uh, uh, you know, you, <laughs> that's, that all that hard work continued to pay off, or mm. did pay off, and uh, from that, though, the, yeah, what happened was uh, UC San Diego was, uh, so UC San Diego gets about $1.3 billion a year in grants. The, the amount of IP that they have and generate on a regular basis is, is absolutely insane. Hmm. However, their strength isn't commercializing it. So in 2016, they decided to create this uh, a group of entrepreneurs and residents that they bring in. And they took four of us uh, from various areas uh, with various uh, different experience levels and hmm. different areas of experience and brought us in to essentially help them commercialize technology. And that is actually where I met the two uh, inventors of, of MEM computing, uh, Fabio Traverse and Max DeVentra. They're 
two PhD physicists uh, that are just, you know, big Einstein brains, and they had come up with this new compute architecture that essentially overcomes the uh, limitations of current compute architectures, not counting quantum. So quantum is a new uh, physics-based compute architecture, but it's still in its infancy, and it seemed like it will become the next generation. Everybody has felt that there's you couldn't meet that those uh, those expectations and get that type of performance out of current silicon-based technology. And that's mm -hmm. essentially what, what mem computing was showing was um, uh, kind of rambling here a little bit, but just one more thing to state before I stop for a second is, sure. is that these, these two PhD physicists, as physicists, they kind of went back and said, okay, if we're going to design a computer today, knowing mm -hmm. what we know about physics and looking at how computers have been designed, they're both electrical engineering experts as well. And they said, you know, there's physics that was left on the table. Our designs go all the way back to uh, the 40s and 50s. Now we've gotten added, you know, transistors and, and, and everything, but it's still uh, the same basic design. And they came up with this entirely new architecture that can be realized in, in not only in silicon, but we can realize it in software. And we didn't, at the time, it wasn't known what I meant in a theoretical piece. They had a publication that was about 40 or 60 pages long. Uh, it had a title on it that was, you know, 20 words long, uh, all very, you know, deep science. I think in the title, I understood three of the words and luckily and and the were two of them. So, uh, but it was, it was clear to me what the implications of the technology were. Hmm. So you and I think that's an interesting. So you, you were basically at, at UC, um, and I keep wanting to say UC Berkeley for some reason. I have some <laughs> UC San Diego, and doing all of that, and you ran into some people. You said, well, you know, I don't know if I fully understand it, or if you know, I I, I fully appreciate it as much as I could. But I think they're onto something. And they said, I, you know, I have enough faith and confidence that I'm going to go in with them, or I'm going to go in and kind of build a business around this, build a company, and make this a success. And so now you take that. So, you, you know, you've almost gone through, it seems like if you, you started out in the medical realm for a while and you kind of did a lot of medical devices and then you went more to kind of consumer ATM type, you know, thing of doing that, made a good exit. That one is a little more life changing. And then you said, okay, I want to give back. And so you went and did a little bit more of UC San Diego and how you can monetize a lot of the IP portfolio. And I know I had no idea that they had such a, a large portfolio or such a, access to so much capital. But then, you know, along the way, you said, okay, now I'm going to do my thing. So you went into mem uh, CPU doing that up until now. And so that was what in 2017, 2018 that you started that? Well, 2016 that we formed it. So we formed it within a, a couple of months of being there. And, and actually, I should let you know, I didn't, I didn't want to do this again. I didn't want to work that hard. Uh, you know, I had a life-changing event. I was semi-retired. Uh, was at home. My daughter was now like five years old and I was able to spend, you know, quality time with my wife and daughter. Uh, you know, remember this summer before things really got going, just the amount of time I spent with her and, um, and my wife and, you know, had real vacations and things. And, and in fact, when I went to UC San Diego, I specifically told them that, so they wanted us to take a company out and, and commercialize technology. I, I specifically told them, I don't want to take a company out. What I'd really like to do is maybe I can help you get two or three companies out and maybe I can use my network mm -hmm. to help build their executive team 
And then, you know, if, if I can become a member of their board or get some, some options uh, as an advisor or something, I'll get some fringe benefit out of it. But I, I, I never had the desire, I never was a CEO, never had the desire to be a CEO. Mm. But here I am, there's two PhD physicists who know nothing about business. Uh, while I've always been the technical guy and very deep technically, this was beyond that. This is deep science. Uh, I, I, I have a bachelor's in math. I don't have a PhD. And the science was literally over my head. And it was one of these things where if anything goes wrong with the technology, I can't help. It's, it's, mm. too, it's beyond me. However, of, of the three of us, I know a lot more about business. Therefore, uh, I'm, I got to be the CEO. And, and, uh, and, and again, never had the desire, but I've learned so much through being in startups. And one of the huge advantages of being in startups is you're exposed to the business where you wouldn't be in a much larger company. Um, and so through osmosis, I had on, on the job training uh, enough to get me uh, to start uh, enough, I knew enough to be able to begin as a, as a CEO and uh, knew enough about raising money, had, had been involved in that in past uh, companies, was never really responsible for raising the money, but was always uh, involved in the, in the conversations and had relationships with, with venture capital and, and things of that nature. Uh, and now just need to go the extra level where not only was I, did I need to talk to them, I needed to sell them and I need to be responsible for for raising the money as well as, as uh, uh, running the company. So, so I'm getting, as we kind of, so now you, that almost brings us up to where you're at today. So, you know, one of the hard things with tech, you know, cursing and a blessing or blessing and a cursing, whatever you want to call it is, you know, technology companies, it can take a long time to develop a product, get it out in the marketplace, you know, get it accepted, set the standard and whatnot, as a, you know, as opposed to take a, you know, what would be a consumer level product or a, you know, some of the other, you know, or, or a brand name company or something of that or services company, you can get it up and going much more quickly. So, you know, how did you, how did, or what advice would you give or how do you navigate when you're saying, hey, this is going to be a, a multi-year project before we even get it out in the marketplace and, and get it going? How do you, you know, how do you have the wherewithal or how, what advice would you give to people on that? Well, you know, it, it's funny because every single one of my startups has been these extremely complex hardware software systems that take years to, to perfect. And, you know, I've always, I've always thought, you know, uh, I, I wish that I had uh, gone to school for marketing instead of math and computer science, because, you know, maybe I would have uh, uh, come up with a pet rock or something that was all, it's, it's the marketing and the branding and everything. And uh, mm. now that's not necessarily easy either, but it's not the same, uh, you know, um, mental uh, gymnastics that you have to do necessarily, actually. Um, so anyway, uh, you, you, but it happened to be my skill and I'm always excited about things that, and one of the things that we're faced with this company too, is that everybody, not everybody, but in, even in academia, what these gentlemen had designed, uh, they were getting a lot of pushback and they thought it was impossible. And one of my trigger points is when, Whenever something is impossible, uh, I, I just can't accept that. And in my past startups, I'd overcome many things that later experts would tell me that, oh, that was impossible. It's like, well, I'm glad I didn't know because had I known, maybe I wouldn't have tried. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, part of it is, you know, we talked about optimism earlier. You have to be optim- 
uh, you have to be very optimistic. You have to believe in what the technology is or whatever it is that you're working on. Mm -hmm. And you just uh, uh, have to bear down and know that it's not something you're going to be releasing in three months and, and being able to demonstrate it to people. And, and in fact, I mean, when I first met these guys, we thought that we we're going to be a fabulous semiconductor company. We thought that we we're going to have to, the first thing we we're going to have to do is build a chip. Building a chip is something that can take, uh, you know, $30 million in five years to build your first version of a chip. It's like raising money for life sciences. You have to raise just huge amounts of money and it takes years and years to deliver. It's really hard to do. But again, it was one of these things where this technology is so amazing. I thought that if we could, if it, I could do it, I could do it for this technology. But the key thing was uh, in, to, in order to evaluate the technology, I contacted the San Diego Supercomputer Center and said, look, we're going to build a, a prototype for our chip, a software emulation of a chip. That's what you do when you build the chip normally anyway. And then you test that before you, you invest in going to the next step of building the hardware. So we built the, uh, the emulation of the chip in software and then delivered it to the supercomputer center to validate it. And would it indeed overcome the issues? Could it show that the chip, that the chip could overcome the issues that, that we see in current computers? And what really blew our minds was that the software emulation of the chip was already showing that. It was orders of magnitude faster than anything else that was out there. Uh, for instance, they were running it on problems where the best methods were taking, it was a special set of problems that were taking about 30 minutes to solve. Hmm. Our chip, sorry, our software emulation of the chip was solving the same problems in sub-second time. Hmm. And we realized, oh my God, we can go out there as a kind of crawl, walk, run, uh, and actually, maybe that's part of the advice too, to look for ways that you can crawl, walk, run, develop kind of a minimal viable product uh, using some common terms uh, where you can show the capabilities of the system. So to us, the minimal viable product was building a software as a service model of our, um, of our software emulation, which we've done. We released it last year as beta, and we're now allowing people to test the technology on their own problems uh, the testing is, it's free. If you're doing evaluation and test, we let you use our system for free. And therefore, you don't have to take our word for it. And, and we've got lots of um, scientific papers and case studies and things that show the performance that, that uh, our technology does. But it's, it's free to use if, you know, if you're skeptical of this technology, as most people are when they first hear about it, because it sounds too good to be true. You don't have to take our word for it. You can go right on our software as a service model. You can sign up today, use it for free and test it on your own and, and see if we can't uh, solve your problem faster than you're able to solve it using current methods. Oh, well, that's awesome. So, so now with all that, you take that. So you've, you've now found the company, you're well into it. You've been building it. People can now test it. They can try it out. So, you know, so what I think as we, as we now get towards the end of the podcast, and, you know, always more things than I ever have time to talk about because there's always plenty of interesting rabbit holes we could dive down. But as you do that, and we'll jump to kind of the last couple of questions I always ask at the end of the podcast. Sure. So the first question I always ask is, as you've gone along that whole journey, as you've done the different businesses, what was the worst business decision you ever made? Well, you know, I, I certainly made bad decisions 
and continue to make them every now and again. But uh, I think the key thing is, is that you have to, uh, in, in, in a startup environment, you have to, you have to make decisions. Mm. You can't wait. You have to make decisions on the best information that you have. And then later, if you found out that, find out that decision was wrong, you need to adjust. And let, mm. let me give you an, an example or an anecdote. So at uh, Pixis, which had gotten very big before I had left, uh, they brought in a new VP over, over my area. And uh, one time during a review, the VP said to me, John, in the amount of time that I make three decisions, you make 12 decisions and get six wrong. And he was trying to tell me that I you know, didn't deserve a big raise. And I said, wait a minute, okay. So the time you take to make three decisions, I make 12 and I get six wrong. Of the six that, so I got six right. I'd already got twice as many right as you did. Of the six that I got wrong, three of them were bad and we had to abandon. And just, you know, an average, right? The other three were just uh, uh, needed to be changed based on new information and we adjusted and then moved on. So in essence, I got nine things right maybe three things wrong, but you can't build innovation without making mistakes. Mm. And so, I mean, I, in fact, the way that I run my company and run all my, my groups and everything is I do not, uh, no one ever gets in trouble for making a mistake. We're going to make mistakes. We're, what you get is praise for then fixing the mistakes and then moving on and learning from those. But I, I, I don't care if people make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. We do make mistakes but it's, it's how you deal with those mistakes and move forward from them. Okay, no, I, that, that, I think that's a very good lesson learned. So now that almost dovetails probably into the second question I always ask, but if you're to give to, if you're to talk into somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business, just getting started, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? So the biggest piece of advice is related to your uh, estimates on the amount of time you think it's going to take and the amount of money you think it's going to take. Uh, we're, we always, when we first start, you know, with startups and projects and what have you, you're, you try to be conservative and you, you, you're, you're optimistic anyway. So you tend to be aggressive, but then you say, okay, I'm aggressive. So therefore I'm, I want to try to be conservative. So you, you make some estimates and maybe you double it. Well, you're really probably wrong by six X. <laughs> what I've always found is that, Things are three times as long and cost three times as much uh, as, as I, I tend to think when I go into it. And you, so you have to prepare for that. Uh, you know, while, when you raise money, you really need to consider what, what expectations you set and based on where you're going to be when, you, when you're done with that money so that you have to be careful that you don't set overly aggressive expectations because when you raise that money, the valuation and or expectation on the company, if you don't meet that, your next round is going to be harder and at a lower valuation and on and on and on. So you really, that's the key thing is, you know, really step back, rejudge what you, what your estimates are and just know that even after you do that, you're still probably wrong <laughs> and it's still probably longer and more money. So make sure that you can handle that, those situations. And I all, but everybody always seems to the exception, no matter how well you plan, you're like, yeah, everybody, I always hear that it's going to take, you know, two or three X longer than I think it will. And more than I think it will. And then you're like, but we, we, we're better than that. We'll pick, we'll, and, and I, I always think it's, you know, everybody just needs to understand 
you're not the exception. And even if you are the one in a million that is the exception, plan as if you're not because you're going to be a whole lot better. You're going to be a whole lot better situation because if you some, somehow miraculously aren't, you know, more time and effort and money than it takes, then by all means, you're good for it. But for the, everybody else, it puts you in a much better spot. So you don't get halfway through only to not make the, make it the rest of the way. So, okay. Well, I've, you know, always more things to talk on, fun things to talk on and never have enough time, but I appreciate you coming on. So the people that want to find out more about, you know, um, MEM CPU, they want to reach out get to, or, you know, with any question they have for you or they otherwise want to get involved or get more information, what's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, just go find memcpu.com. The company's name is actually MEM Computing, but as a shortcut, it's MEM CPU. Uh, there's contact forms on there. There's places where you can register to use the SAS for free. There's tons of information about the company. Uh, and that's the best way to reach out to us. All right. Well, I uh, strongly encourage anybody that's wanting to know a whole bunch about awesome computers that are going to do th or change the world. Um, certainly reach out and uh, check them out. And uh, thank you for coming on. For those of you that are uh, have a, a, an inventive journey that you'd like to tell, that would like to tell a story of your startup, your small business, we'd love to have you on. You can just go to inventivejourneyguest.com to apply. And uh, for those of you that are uh, listening to this episode and want to get notified of uh, future episodes, make sure to subscribe. And of course, we're always here to help the startups and small businesses with patents and trademarks. John, thank you again for coming on. It's been fun to have you on and uh, look forward to the ongoing success of you and the, the team at uh, MEM CPU or MEM Computing. And thank you again. <laughs> Thanks, Devin. It was a pleasure.